Welcome to the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease podcast, a fortnightly podcast about all things IMD. The podcast has been running for 18 months, has over 40 episodes and covers assorted topics from across the broad spectrum of inherited metabolic disease. Some episodes provide broad overviews of diagnoses, while others provide deeper insights into complex topics. So be sure to check out our back catalogue and subscribe or follow to never miss an episode, but not before listening to this latest episode on pharmacochaperoning in PMM2 CDG. Hello there. Now, it's hard to believe that in the first 18 months of the podcast, we have never done an episode focusing on PMM2 CDG. I'm not really sure how I ever let that happen. However, it's time to redress the balance with a look at the paper Insight on Molecular Pathogenesis and Pharmacochaperoning Potential in Phosphomanomutase 2 Deficiency, provided by Novel Human Phosphomanomutase 2 Structures. And I'm delighted to be joined for this discussion by all three senior authors, uh, Dr. Vincente Rubio, Dr. Belen Perez, and Dr. Santiago Ramon. Uh, Vincente, uh, Belen, and Santiago, thank you for speaking with me. Thank you, James. Thank you. Now, as I mentioned, we've talked about some CDGs before. Obviously, there's a lot of them, but PMM2 is by far and away the most common. I wonder if you could give the briefest of introductions to this condition. Okay, PMN2 CDG is the most common congenital disorder of glycosylation. There are more than 1,000 patients around the world. And CDG is a very severe disorder because they affect the glycosylation of a protein. Glycosylated protein are affecting many different pathways, many different systems, affect the immunological system, the neurologic system. PMN2 is a, a, an enzyme, the first enzyme involved in the activation of the mannose, the, the sugar involved in this uh, glycosylated uh, protein, probably is the less severe defect. And it's, uh, it's also more easy to, to detect because there is a not a very good biomarker, but there is a biomarker to detect PMN2CDG. And affecting other uh, genes affecting the, the congenital disorder of glycosylation, there are more than 200 different uh, gene disorder. Probably the identification of patients with other uh, defects are not uh, very easy. And from the medical point of view, what Belen was saying is uh, very important, that this is not the disease of a single organ that the patients having this disease have all these manifestations. Neurological, certainly, this is the most constant. And ataxia also, that means cerebellar dysfunction. And they have global developmental delay. Even some, some patients have difficulties with nutrition. I, I mean, taking food when they are children. And you can have, for example, the adipose tissue development is the, uh, altered, the subcutaneous one. And you have a skin and abnormalities. Also, you have some deformities in the ears. You can, have, can, you can see hypoplasia in the outer ear. And even cardiac manifestations, for example, pericarditis. So it's it's a problem with this disease that is uh, general. What's clear there is these are severe diseases. They, you know, the wider CDG group are difficult to diagnose. PMM2, is, as Belen has mentioned, there is a biomarker for it. Obviously, the necessity of your current work is the lack of therapies for these devastating disorders. Why is PMM2 disease so hard to treat? First. I need to mention that uh, it's a multisystemic uh, defect. For that, the, the target is uh, the liver, 
the brain, the different organs, different tissues. For that, it's not easy to, to deliver the different uh, drugs. In addition, there is not possible to increase the product of this uh, defect because it's not easy to, to deliver the, 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 the product of the defect because PMN2 catalyzes the activation of mannose 6-phosphate to 1-phosphate and it's not easy to give the, the product, the mannose 1-phosphate, because it's not easy to cross the membrane. For that, uh, we need to search for drugs to deliver to different organs uh, to increase the amount of the protein, but in all organs. It's not easy also to do enzyme replacement. It's not easy to cross the membrane with the protein. This is the, the most common therapy in lysosomal disorder because the, the protein have a receptor to uh, cross the membrane. And the new uh, therapy, the, the gene editing, patients have two different mutations. Usually are compound heterozygous of two different mutations and we need to change both uh, alleles and uh, it's really a challenge to, to looking for drugs to increase the, the amount of the protein, to increase the stability of the protein. For that, we're looking for a compound, a pharmacological chaperone, a specific chemical compound bind to the protein to increase the amount, the concentration of the protein and to increase the activity. Probably there is not uh, only one uh, therapy for PMN2. Probably the solution needs to have different uh, therapeutic strategy, different drug, different uh, system to increase the activity of PMN2. And that was something we um, we briefly alluded to when we were discussing Neiman Pick C was this sort of need to assemble a, a treatment puzzle, if you will, where multiple drugs were required. The podcast often talks about animal or cell models of disease. How useful are they in PMM2? Uh, we have now the mouse model in, in our uh, lab, but the, the mouse have uh, a very uh, severe defect and it's not possible to have the model with many months to test the, the drugs. Now we are working in cellular model. A hepatocyte-like cell differentiated from IPS, from fibroblasts of the patient, and also we are working to obtain other models by using gene editing because it's better to have a cellular model to check a large library, to check a different compound, and after to move to the mouse model to test the drugs because it's not easy to have a lot of mice in the lab. And it's also very, very expensive for the academic group. We need help from the pharmaceutical companies to help us to move this type of therapy. So when it's difficult to get these in vitro and in vivo studies running, or even prior to those, you may fall back on looking at the protein structure itself to assist in identifying treatments. Within the paper, you acknowledge that the information we have so far is not complete. Why is that? Well, the thing is that if we want to understand the pathogenic mutations, these mutations are causing tiny changes. So the mutations change one or very few atoms of the protein. So if we want to understand the disease at the molecular level, we need the most accurate model of the protein, in one that we can distinguish every single atom. 
to understand the effect of the mutations. And this is extremely challenging. So until we started working with this protein, there were several models. One was for the human phosphomaminitase one protein, which is a similar enzyme, but cannot replace the defects in phosphomaminitase two. There were several structures of this protein, of this homolog protein. There were also structures for the protein from another organism, from Leismania. But, you know, these are just models. We need the actual structure. We need the, to look directly at the phosphomanimitase to atoms to understand the pathogenic mutations. And there was also another structure deposited in our databases for the human phosphomanimitase too, but this was an incomplete structure. There were some regions that later we found out that these are very important, they were missing, and other cofactors. So what we report in this paper is the complete picture of the, of the enzyme. Not only the protein, but also the metal ions and the water molecules that the protein recruits to form part of the catalytic machinery. Okay. So obviously, given those limitations, your paper describes structural studies undertaken using X-ray crystallography. The article contains some wonderful illustrations and really vivid descriptions of what you've found. Um, I would encourage people who are interested to know all the details to go and look at the paper itself. But I wonder if you could share any highlights or surprises. The protein structures we look at, every time we solve a new structure, nature surprises us. This is a tiny and complex molecular machine, it seems like every little part of the protein is doing something that is relevant. It can be either important for the shape and the folding of the protein, or it can be important for the dimerization, because this protein is a dimer, or it can be important for the binding of the ligands, the substrates, of, or to catalyze the reaction. So it doesn't matter at what part of the protein you look at. It is exciting, it is important, and it is new. So I think that what is more exciting is what we don't understand. It's more than the things that we understand. For example, this, this protein is a dimer, but each part, each subunit is doing something different. We, we find each subunit binding to a different ligand, being in a different position, and we still don't understand what this means. I really think that one addition that we have done that it's uh, crucial is that the model that was deposited was not only incomplete, and also crystallographic structures mean nothing to the doctor. So you need, in a way, a guide to explain what the crystallographic structure means. And actually, the model that was deposited in a protein data bank went without any explanation. There was not a paper associated with it explaining the findings too. Furthermore, proteins normally do not act only by themselves, by the protein part, but they take things called ligands that do things. For example, we have found here three ions, two magnesiums and one chloride that we feel are crucial. Second thing is the structure that there was before was of a single subunit. When we say subunits, I mean, the gene produces a polypeptide chain, a protein chain, but the protein chains associate and only work when they are associated. And this seems to be the case with this protein, where only the dimeric form, I mean, two chains, the same chains duplicated and bound to itself, only that is functional. 
So what uh, this is the first glimpse that we have of the dimer, because the deposited structure was a single subunit in the crystal. So the structure of the dimer was generated by what is called a symmetry operation. You apply a, an axis of symmetry, and from that you have a, a rotation of 180 degrees, and you have the dimer. But actually, the surprise that we found, here we see the whole dimer without applying any symmetry operation, and we see that the two subunits are different. So that's a surprise. The two subunits have different conformations. So that's a very good evidence for movement there. The second thing is that when you look at this enzyme for acting, needs a molecule called an activator, which is very important. And in this case, we got the picture with the activator bound to it, but only to one subunit. Why is that? We have to investigate more. We don't understand it fully. So it's uh, also the, uh, one of the magnesiums uh, is catalytic. I mean, without it, there is no activity. But the other one probably has a structural role. That means making the protein sturdy, more resilient. And we find the chloride between the two subunits. So that means that the dimer is stronger when the chloride is there. Any mutation that interferes with the binding of this chloride is going to promote dissociation and an inactive enzyme. So all these things, I think, to me at least, were very surprising. You've mentioned that what you've discovered has led you to realise more about what you don't know, but what comes next after this work? Well, I think there is a lot more coming. We need to do a lot of more research uh, to understand how this protein functions, why it gets broken, and how we can fix it. So from the basic research, what we know now is how it looks like. But it doesn't mean that we understand how it works. It's like if you show to a Martian a picture of a person. Uh, he can guess how we look like, but he could not understand how we move, jump, or run. We have a snapshot of the protein, but this protein breathes, it moves, it binds, it collaborates with other protein. And we don't have this information yet. And why is this important? Because if we don't have it, we cannot fully understand how it works and what is wrong with the mutations. And if we get all this information, we might be clever enough to find a new therapeutic strategy. And I mean, I feel a bit like the Martian looking at the human when I stare at your picture of your crystal. I'm obviously very interested in the clinical aspect of things. We've seen some drug repurposing work in PMM2 already with acetazolamide and this trial that's just recruiting now for uh, an aldose reductase inhibitor. I don't want to seem stupid, but does the work you're doing inform that kind of drug discovery work? I don't think so, because these are different approaches to therapy. I mean, the acetazolamide, for example, Belen should explain because she is one of the inventors of this therapy. So she can explain to you. But the other one, the aldose reductase therapy, for example, works by the principle. I said that there is an activator that is essential for the activity of this enzyme, which is a derivative of glucose called glucose 1,6-bisphosphate. 
Now, the aldose reductase therapy, what it does is to try to enhance the concentration of this uh, activator by preventing the use of glucose in another pathway that leads to sorbitol and fructose, okay? So by increasing the concentrations of glucose 1,6-bisphosphate, this would, in a way, activate the residual activity that is there and also probably stabilize the protein. Now, concerning acetacelonide, I think Belen knows much better than I do. The rationale for this type of uh, therapy is different. It's not a target to the protein, it's target for the effect of the deficiency of PMN2. Uh, many canals in the brain are glycosylated, and in this type of patient is, is not glycosylated, and uh, the, the canal doesn't work well. And for that, we use a specific uh, drug to increase the activity on one of these type of canal. But the rationale of this uh, therapy is uh, very different. Our hypothesis is to use uh, drugs, to use compound to increase the amount of the protein target to the protein or even also to increase the mRNA or, or the expression of the gene to increase the amount of protein because our hypothesis is that the, uh, all patients have a, a protein with a residual activity, but uh, the amount of the protein is too low, and we need to increase this uh, this concentration to increase the activity. In the next paper, we uh, demonstrate that uh, many patients have a hypomorphic mutation, and the pharmacological chaperone probably can increase the, this uh, activity and the concentration of, of the protein. But these are the therapies, and we call them physiopathological therapies, that are working on the physiopathological derangement. Well, the one that Belen and we are aiming at is a, a molecular therapy, really. is really uh, looking at the Achilles heel of this disease, and is that no patient exists with zero activity. So you have some enzyme activity. So what you want is to make this enzyme that is or in little amount or dysfunctional to make it more functional so it can work better. And that's, that's the approach. We call pharmacochaperones because a chaperone is something that promotes the activity, enhances the activity, helps the protein to fall properly. And I suppose if we come back to, to pharmacochaperones, this is obviously the JRMD podcast and not the human mutation podcast. But within your paper, you reference one of your other works, um, which looked at 10,000 compounds for possible treatment efficacy in PMM2 and identified from those 10,000, you whittled it down to just, just a handful. Um, but you found some possible candidates. How does one even begin to do that? And is, any, what's, is this going moving forward now? The human mutation described the, the search for a specific pharmacological chaperone. We used a very large library. We used the, the recombinant protein to, to check this large uh, library. And we identified one compound which uh, specifically bind to the PMN2 protein. And uh, this uh, compound increased the, the amount of the protein and increased the activity. Now we are working to 
increase the efficacy uh, and the efficiency of this compound, checking different chemical analogs. And the, the crystal structure of the PMN2 is very important to identify the pocket where this compound binds to the protein to design uh, other analogs. Perfect. Well, it, it sounds like that's something else that we've got to look forward to then. So hopefully we'll be speaking to you again about that in future. I'm very grateful to all of you for your time this morning. You've certainly made a very complicated topic, something that I can understand. If you want to read this paper, go to the journal website and search for PMM2 pharmacochaperoning or click on the link in the podcast description. And if you'd like to hear more from us, then search for JMD Podcast wherever you'd like to listen. Belen, Santiago and Vincente, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, James. Thanks very much. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.